Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guest. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to set up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow, lead me to Calvary. This morning's lesson contains four points. Complaining. Compassion, compliance, and comparison. But if all you remember this morning when we're through and you leave are the, is the fact that there were four C's, or even if you remember what those four C's are, just the words of them, I can tell you I will have utterly failed in preaching this lesson. Because the points of our lesson this morning are meant to take us to yet another C word, that is Calvary. The place that stands at the center post of human history and is the absolute foundation of our faith. That's where we're going this morning. But we're going to take a little bit of a roundabout way to get there. In John chapter 3, Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, that man who's Known to most of us as the one who came to Jesus by night. In fact, the picture you see on the screens before you may not even be accurate. There are some who suggest that Nicodemus came. He's the one that Jesus had the conversation with. But others might have been with him as well. Just nearby enough at least to hear the conversation. We, we don't know. But we know that Jesus came. We know that Nicodemus came, excuse me, to Jesus. And we know that he was sincere in coming and asking some questions. Trying to figure out what's going on. We know that no one can do the things that you do unless, unless he's from God. How could all this stuff be happening? I'm always struck when I read the accounts of the gospel, but especially when I read John's account of the gospel, how often Jesus interacted with just one person or a very, very small group of people. And even beyond that, I'm touched by how many absolutely huge truths Jesus first revealed to just one person. Just by way of one example of that, in the same account of the gospel in John chapter 4, you remember Jesus talked with a Samaritan woman, and it's to her and her alone that he revealed at the very first time, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That was spoken to one person the first time it was said. And the same type of thing happens in John chapter 3. As Jesus begins to, to speak with this man named Nicodemus about this concept of being born again, that the new birth, and Nicodemus can't quite figure out exactly what Jesus is talking about. And Nicodemus has, I don't want to say a problem, but he, ha- he has a, a difficulty with understanding these deep spiritual truths, looking beyond just the physical reality of what Jesus might have been talking about and seeing something far deeper, far more spiritual. We might even say an eternal benefit to what Jesus was saying. 
And that's why we picked up our scripture reading a little while ago from John chapter 3 and verse 9, where Nicodemus asked that question, how can these things be? He's trying to figure this stuff out. And we can understand that. But you remember, as Jesus talked earlier in John chapter 3 to him about this concept of being born again and a new birth, Nicodemus asked a question that we can read almost in a humorous way, but it's a very natural question. How is that supposed to work, if you can put that in 2017 language? He says, how can someone be born again when he's old? Is he supposed to go back into his mother's womb, be born again? We read them, we kind of chuckle a little bit, but if you've never heard this concept before, you and I might have asked the very same question. Nicodemus was struggling with how to balance the spiritual behind the physical words that Jesus said. And that continues to be true in the section of Scripture that Brighton read for us a little while ago in John chapter 3. After Nicodemus asked that question, how can these things be? Jesus begins to talk to him about very deep spiritual truths. And found embedded within that is where Jesus spoke of an historical event. But he used it to teach an extremely deep spiritual truth. You may have noticed the last couple of weeks as we've begun to wind down 2017, we've been going through the words of Jesus. You may have noticed we've kind of trended toward the the crucifixion. We spent a couple of weeks ago thinking about Gethsemane, the the place in the garden where Jesus prayed that powerful prayer. We, We spent some time last week thinking about one of those trials, among many others we could have talked about, where Jesus stood before Pilate. And so you may think, Adam, you've lost your mind. Here here we've been very late in the accounts of the gospel, and here we are reading from John chapter 3. Should we be in like chapter 19 or 20 or somewhere way on back there? But what Jesus does, even though it's early in his ministry in John chapter 3, is he prophesies about the time when a king would be lifted up. And he does so by tying the Old Testament and the New Testament together. By reminding us of an account found way back in the Old Testament book of Numbers. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want you to turn back to Numbers. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you start in Genesis. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers. It's the fourth book of the Bible. And we're going to go to Numbers chapter 21. Because I want us to see why Jesus would say, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up. What in the world was Jesus talking about? And I want to confess something to you. When I was putting this lesson together, thinking about it, studying about it, preparing to go back to Numbers, I had my mind set that I was going to go back to a chapter, a chapter and a half of Numbers, because this is one of those accounts in the Old Testament that I've been taught since I was basically a baby. We learned about it in Bible school growing up, and it becomes just such an important account for us, an important story for us, and it's so big in our minds, and it's about five verses. It's not a very long account at all. As Jesus reminded Nicodemus of that account, though, Jesus gave it not just spiritual significance, He gave it eternal significance that I want us to see this morning. In the first place, I want you to notice all the way back in Numbers 21 that there was, in fact, complaining. That's where you go back to the backstory in Numbers chapter 21. You may remember in the book of Numbers, the people were supposed to go into the promised land, but they didn't because they were complaining and grumbling and fearful and so on and so forth. And so their punishment is to wander in the wilderness one day for a year, or one year for a day. That would be a lot easier if it's the other way around, wouldn't it? One year for a day. Those spies were, were in the wilderness, in the promised land for 40 days, and so the punishment was to wander for 40 years. And Numbers contains some of what happens in that time. 
And a lot of it is grumbling and complaining. And you see that as the backstory in Numbers chapter 21. In verse 4 beginning, you'll read these words. Numbers 21 verse 4. From Mount Hor they set out by the place to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Now, as we say, this is not the first time we see grumbling, murmuring, complaining among the people of Israel while they're in the wilderness, or even before, for that matter. It seems that at every step along the way, if you read through it, it's almost as if every day they're complaining about something. That probably wasn't the case, but it certainly seems that way. But did you notice as we read their complaint that it gets to a point where it's actually ridiculous? Because they actually said there's no food. And what do they loathe? The food. So which is it? Is there no food or is there food? Well, there's food. But did you notice the adjective they gave to it? It's worthless food. The word worthless there can mean two different things. Either one could be in their mind. One is despicable. It, it's, it's food, but... Ugh. Any of us ever complain about that kind of stuff? Turner? Um, sorry. Just doing some parenting. The other word is unsubstantial. There's food, but it's not enough. Do you know what we had back in Egypt? Remember their complaint before they went over in the promised land when they came out of Egypt? We had leeks and melons and garlics. And now all we got is just some food. It's not substantial. It doesn't fill me up, right? Either one of those could be in their mind. But their complaining has gotten to a level where it doesn't even make sense anymore. Because they're saying there's no food and they're complaining because they have food. They're so deep in this complaint that they're not even making sense anymore. What's at the back of all of that? Selfishness. And isn't that at the back of every sin we ever commit? Isn't sin at its most basic level selfishness? We, we want what we want. We want what we want when we want it. Or what we see we have from God. It's not good enough. It's not fast enough. It's not big enough. It's not strong enough. It's not enough for me at this time in life. And at the back of it, it's just flat out selfishness. I want what I want and I want it now. And if I could have it yesterday, that would have been better. That's what we see all the way back in Numbers 21. And God sent that awful plague, those fiery serpents, if you ever wonder what that had to look like, that would have killed the people and did if they were bitten and not healed. But then in the second place back in Numbers 21, you also see God's compassion. If you continue reading there, notice what the people said beginning in verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you, against Moses. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now we have to keep in mind, the people are the ones who made the mistake. They were the selfish ones. They were the ones who were complaining. They were the ones, if you please, who broke the covenant. Who were not trusting in God for their provision, for their protection, and even for their daily food. Because of that, God was not obligated for one second to provide a way out. He could have just said, let those serpents just keep going. He was under no obligation to provide any healing, any way out of any situation. And so verse 8 then tells us, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Now, to be sure, that is a strange solution. 
There is nowhere else in Scripture where you see God giving this specific command out of any situation whatsoever to make a bronze servant put on a pole and look at it. Okay, But the point we have to make here is that God was under no obligation to make any way out whatsoever for these people. But God is filled with compassion. And when the people cried out to God, He provided that way out. In the Old Testament... We often see God described as having loving kindness. Some translations will have steadfast mercy. When you read that phrase, you're reading a word. You see the English translate or transliteration of it there, H-E-S-E-D. I'm not going to pronounce it because I spit over the microphone. But that's the word you see. And it means a lot of different things. It's a fairly generic word, but it's a beautiful word. It does mean loving kindness. It means steadfast love. It can be translated mercy. Interestingly, it can be translated loyalty. And I want you just to hear, you don't have to turn to these, but I want you just to hear some of the times this word is used in just one book of the Bible. By the way, it's found 248 times in the Old Testament, but I figured you wanted to eat lunch at some point today, so we're not going to go through all of them. But just listen. Psalm 5, verse 8. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. Psalm 13, 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. The most famous one, Psalm 23 and verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 25 and verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love. One translation has mercy and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and testimonies. Psalm 51, 1, David wrote, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. And one more, Psalm 86, 15, But you, O Lord, are our God, merciful and gracious, slow in anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, why take that detour through a whole other book of the Bible when we're thinking about something that happened many years before that in the book of Numbers? Because that's the trait, that's the characteristic that the people, when they cried out to God, were banking on. That's the one that they hoped God would display in this time. They needed God's steadfast love. They needed God's mercy. They needed God's loyalty, even though they had been disloyal to the covenant. And God puts his compassion on full display by offering this way out of their trouble. He's under no obligation to do so. But God does so because he is a God of that Hebrew word, the God of steadfast love. But do you not find it of some interest that the people were not healed just right on the spot? Moses does what he's supposed to do, but there's also in the third place in this text some words of compliance. Numbers 21 verse 9. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, in reality, in that one verse, there are two points of compliance. First of all is Moses himself. What if Moses had a fear of snakes and so he made a bronze bear instead? Would he have been following the law of God? Of course not. What if Moses had said, I don't like working with with bronze or some translations have brass. And I think it would be prettier if this thing was made out of shiny new silver. Let's Let's make that. Would that have been following God's command? No. What if Moses had made a bronze serpent like God said, but he said, that's a lot of work. 
Put it up on a pole too? No way. I'm going to sit up here on top of a rock. That's high enough. People can look at that serpent up there on that ledge. And that's good. Enough. Is that following God's command? No. Moses had to go through with every step of this admittedly somewhat strange command given by God to forge or to make this bronze serpent and to sit on a pole in the right place. That's compliance number one. But obviously the other point of compliance is the people themselves. They were not healed just because Moses built the bronze serpent. That would have made it a whole lot easier, wouldn't it? If all they had to worry about was Moses making the bronze serpent, don't you know everybody who was bitten would have been outside of his tent going, please get it made, please get it made, please get it made. But then once he got it made and had it put up on the pole, God said they had to look at it. I know you're not supposed to preach from what the Bible does not say, but I find it of some interest that we're not told any specific accounts of it happening. In other words, you don't have Moses making the serpent and then the text going on to give us three or four examples of maybe this priest or maybe this person with some influence being bit by a serpent and coming and looking at the bronze serpent and they were healed. This is total opinion, okay? My opinion is the reason it's not recorded for us is we are left to assume that anybody and everybody who was bitten was going and looking at the serpent. You couldn't have fit all the accounts in the scripture. That's all we'd have in the Old Testament are accounts of people being healed by this serpent. All it says is when they looked at it, they were healed. We don't have to have specific examples. But they had to do what God said in the way God said it in order to get healing from this awful and bizarre situation. Now that's the backstory, And that's all it is. Five, six verses, whatever it is. All the way back in the book of Numbers. But in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. A man who was a leader of the Jews. And just as a Jewish boy, now a man. But for sure as a Jewish leader... He would not just have known that that story happened way back when. He would have had it memorized. Because they memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so as soon as Jesus started talking about Moses lifting up a serpent, not only would Nicodemus have kind of had some vague picture that had hung on his vacation Bible school wall at some point in time, he would have had the exact account you and I have just walked through, memorized word for word. And so that's where you come all the way back to John chapter 3, and you have the comparison. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. That little word as and as or just as in verse 14 shows us that Jesus is making a comparison all the way back from that account in Numbers. But the question becomes why? Why would Jesus choose that account among all the hundreds of other accounts from the Old Testament? It's because the three things we pointed out from back in Numbers 21, they continue to be true about when Jesus was lifted up. For example, instead of the word complaining, we might just use the word sin. Why did Moses have to make the bronze serpent? Because the people complained, the people sinned, they broke the covenant. Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Because I broke the covenant. Because I sinned. And at the back of all of it is selfishness. 
I see what God says in Scripture, and frankly, I just don't want to do it. I don't want to follow those commands. I want to do things my way. I know better. I know better how to live my life. I know better how to have my relationships be just what I want them to be. I don't want what God wants me to do. And I for sure don't want to do what God wants me to do in the time or in the way or with the attitude that God wants me to do it. And so it's no wonder then that Paul could write twice in one chapter in Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 and verse 23. So you have the same thing. You have complaining, you have sin. But instead of the word compassion, maybe we should use the word salvation. As Moses lifted the surf of the wilderness, so the Son of Man also must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Salvation. God was under no obligation whatsoever to heal those people back in Numbers 21. He could have just said, let them die. And let the serpents keep going. I'm, I'm sick of these people. I'm tired of these people. But he had compassion. He had loving kindness. Remember the word we used? He had loyalty. God, from before the foundation of the world, had a plan in place to save you and I. It's because of his loyalty, his compassion, his love, his steadfast love. That he stuck with that plan even through putting his own son on the cross. Or allowing his son to be put on the cross, I should say. My salvation and yours is tied to Jesus being lifted up in the same way that serpent was lifted up all those years before. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Ephesians 2 verse 8. And instead of the word compliance, we might choose the word submission. That whoever believes in him, Jesus said, yes, there is something you and I must do. When Moses made that serpent all those years ago, the people were not healed just because Moses finally laid down the forging hammer or finally got the the serpent on the pole and set it up. They weren't healed right then. They still had to look at it. And folks, just because Jesus went to the cross does not mean I am saved. There is something I must do. And our world doesn't want to hear that. Our world just wants to hear that God loves us so much that he sent his son that I may have eternal life. But that's not what the next verse says, is it? And it's not what Jesus said here. That whoever believes in him will have eternal everlasting life. There is something I must do. I must submit my will to the will of God. I must admit I am not in charge. But I believe in Jesus. And I believe he's in charge. It's with that as the background. That we have what might be the most famous thing Jesus ever said. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only son, only begotten son. That whoever believes in him. Should not perish. But have everlasting or eternal life. If you read from the English Standard Version, you may notice that in that verse, John 3 and verse 16, behind the word so, I believe, it may be behind the word loved, there's a footnote. Because that little word so, God so loved the world, can mean a couple of different things. We usually think of it as a degree. 
God loved the world this much. He so loved the world. And that certainly is possible. But there's another possibility behind that little tiny word, so, S-O. And that is, God loved the world in this way. Or in this manner. And that ties together what Jesus said in verses 14 and 15, even more beautifully, in my opinion. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Just as those people complained back then, but God showed His compassion back then, and God provided a way out if they would simply do what He said, just as that happened way back in Numbers chapter 21, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And God showed His love. He loved you and me enough that in this way, He gave His only begotten Son. It's the same thing that Paul would write many years later in Romans chapter 5. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The verse begins by saying God demonstrates His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 verse 8. God so loved the world. If I may paraphrase, that He allowed the King to be lifted up. When did that happen? Well, let the same writer tell you. And there, they crucified him. God was under no obligation other than the fact that he had made a covenant to save you and I. But when he made the covenant, he obligated himself and allowed his son to die. In the same way, We sin, and so we must have a way out. And God, through His compassion, His loving kindness, His loyalty, has provided that. And how does that happen? It happens when we go back to Calvary. And that's why Paul would write, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. Our belief culminates in meeting Jesus at the cross by faith in the waters of baptism. And that happens when we go to Calvary. So as we close, may I take you there. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross To the place called the place of the skull. Which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him two others. One on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified, was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather the man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven from one piece in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus 
were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold, your son. Then he said to his disciple, woman, excuse me, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had finished and received the sour wine, he said, To Telestai, it is accomplished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Lest I forget thy thorn crowned brow. Lead me to Calvary. Do you not know that any of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Why? Because God loved you in this manner that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How could that be true? Because just as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he was. For you. And if you've never contacted what he did there on that day, this is your day. To allow the blood he shed for you and for me to wash your sins away forever. Do you believe in him enough to do that? If so, you don't have to know everything about Scripture. That's what you need to know. That what he did there is what saves you. And it's time to make him the king of your life by believing him enough to obey. It's time. And there's people in this room who need to. And we're praying that as we sing this song, you'll make that choice. Won't you come while we stand and sing to encourage you?